Uh, when you walked in this morning, you got a cup. Uh, and for those of you that are here for the first time, we normally don't do this. So uh, this is not an everyday thing. Passing out cups. I've already heard the Kool-Aid jokes. I get it. Uh, so here's what I need you to think of. So if you've got your, some of you are like, oh, now I get the Kool-Aid. Yeah. So if you got your cup, here's what I want you to think of. Grab your cup. I want you to begin to think about mentally all the things that you consider valuable and putting them in this cup. Things that you consider valuable, things that you put a high value on, mentally start to fill your cup with those things. So I'm sure relationships, there's some very specific and intentional relationships that you probably value and you wanna make sure that, no, those are valuable in my life. I don't wanna forget those, so maybe those go in there. Maybe it's, it's resources. We tend to always go to money and resources first when we think of value and the things that are valuable. So sure, that might have a place in that. So that goes in the cup. What about those like hopes and dreams? Those things that you've been working towards, working for, it's why you stay up late, it's why you come home late, it's why you put in the effort. Those hopes and dreams are gonna go in the cup. Those things that you're working towards, maybe it is a, a status, maybe it's a career path, maybe it is a specific job, a specific position, maybe it's a status, those need to go in the cup as well. Anything in your life that you would consider of high value to you personally, that's gonna go in the cup. So mentally think through that. And then you're gonna put this cup way over here and we're not gonna talk about it for about 25 minutes. We're gonna come back here in just a little bit. But as that's off to the side, um, we have been going through a study on King David, Old Testament, King David, David and Goliath, that David, this entire summer. And when we first were introduced to David, he was a shepherd boy that everybody in his family forgot about, neglected, didn't think that he had what it, what it took to be king. And we find out very quickly that God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. In fact, David is called a man after, finish it with me, God's own heart. So we get introduced to David early on, gets anointed as king, but he's not truly king yet. He's not sitting on the throne. And he goes through a lot of ups and a lot of downs in that time between being anointed king and actually sitting on the throne, running for his life, trying to figure out what it means to truly be a king after God's own heart. He finally gets to the throne. He takes the throne after God gives it to him. And it's just victory after victory. It's great thing after another great thing. And we saw the kindness of this King David. And we saw how God continued to bless King David. We also saw the downfall of King David. As choice after choice led him to a place of making one of the biggest, one of the biggest regretful decisions of his life. But we still saw God's grace and mercy even through David's story. So we go through all of David's life and all of his story and we get to 2 Samuel 23. If you got your Bibles, be there. That's where we're gonna be the rest of the morning. If you don't have a Bible, please make sure you pick one up. The best gift that I could give you is a copy of the Bible. So they're out there next to where you got your coffee. Take one, put your name in it, write in it, bring it with you each week. But as you go through 2 Samuel and get to the, the chapter 23, you'll see again, victory after victory, victory after victory until you get to chapter 23 and it's David's last words. So now we're on the tail end of David's life. And what we read in this chapter is pretty interesting that this is when David decided to talk about these things. Chronologically, it doesn't totally line up, but this is one of his final things that are shared uh, with him being king. And I think it is valuable because it's all about the people closest to him. I mean, this is David that defeated Goliath. This is King David that 
that not just battled, but won victory after victory after victory. And even with all those battles won, we still see that David found it necessary to have good people around him, great people around him, good friends, good warriors, good men of God around him. In fact, we're told that they called them the 30. The mighty warriors of David are known as the 30. So through all of these campaigns and through all of these battles, it wasn't just David fighting, it was David and the army, but more specifically, it was David and his mighty warriors known as the 30. But then David even closes the circle a little bit more. And it's not just the armies of Israel. It's not just the 30, but then he has what are known as the three. Three individuals, three closest friends of David's, three warriors that David kept close. They're known as the mightiest warriors and the warriors that were closest as friends to David. And that's what we wanna pay attention to. Even King David needed three around him. He needed some good friends around him. We know that. I mean, friends are a huge part of our life. When we're missing friends, we feel the, the void. When we have friends, we find ourselves very grateful and thankful to have people like that in our lives. But let me go one step further. It's not just have friends. It's not just we need friends, but it's a pay attention to the right friends, right? Because you can have friends, but those friends can lead you down a wrong path. So it's Yes, we need friendship. We need those relationships. I believe God has wired us and designed us to be in relationship with him, but also in relationship, friendship with one another. But we need to also ask, well, are these the right friends and are they leading me down the right path? Am I being a good friend? And am I leading people down the right path as well? So it's not just have friends. It's let's, let's pay attention to who those friends are and what we can learn from David's three friends. So that's what we're gonna do. Let's look at each of these three. There's a little story that goes with each of them and we'll see what makes these men great friends of David. Second Samuel chapter 23, starting in verse eight. These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. The first was Jashobim, who was the leader of the three. So again, Israelite army, the 30, and then the three. And here, Joshua Beam, we're told, is the leader of the three. The three mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. That's a good friend. You need a friend that when you're facing 800 enemies, you call up and they say, I got you. I'll take care of it. Well, what do you need? What can I help with? No, 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 no. You don't worry about a thing. It's gonna be me, my spear, and 800 enemies, but I got it covered. Like that's a friend that you want close by. Now forget the whole spear and, and, and enemy warrior part. This was somebody that David could most certainly rely on. David could count on. This man had a skill in battle and he used his skill, not just for his own good, but he used it for the good of his king. He used it for the good of people around him. So for us, what kind of friend do we need in our lives? We need friends that you can count on. Friends that you can call anytime you need someone and say, hey, I'm struggling. I have a problem and you have a skill set. God has gifted you. God has talent, given you a talent to help specifically with this, these things. So I need your help. You gotta have friends that you can count on because we can't do everything and we're not good at everything. So God has placed people in our lives that can fill in some of those gaps that can help us in a time of need, that can fill in and use their skill set in a way that's gonna be helpful for us when we need them. 
I think through all the people that I call for very specific reasons. I'm blessed, Becky and I both, so grateful and thankful to have such good friends in our lives as a couple, as a family, but us individually as well. And if I have a problem when I'm trying to cook, because I, and some of you have been around me long, you know I'm not a good cook. I have great intentions when I try to cook for my family or for my wife, but it never works out. And so I have a friend that I will call, his name's Ryan. I'm like, Ryan, here's what the recipe says. I don't know what these words and ingredients are. Help me out. So he'll walk me through it. He's like, well, this, yeah, you've done that totally wrong. Do this instead. So anytime I have a cooking question, I call Ryan. When my back goes out, I'm starting to experience the old thing. When that happens, some of you are like, yeah, I'm there. Yeah, get used to it. It doesn't go away. Anytime my back goes out, I call a different Ryan. Not the same Ryan as cooking, but a different Ryan. As, as, a, as an athletic uh, therapist, he's like, well, I'll do these stretches and do this and lay this way. And so I call Ryan every time my back goes out. Anytime my car starts giving me problems or there's strange noises that I've never heard before, I've got two friends that I call, Adam and Jeff. And they're like, well, what's it sound like? This. Like, well, here's what it is. And they know I'm not gonna be able to fix it. So here's where you need to go. Here's what you need to tell them. So Adam and Jeff are great friends and they will tell me what I need to do and help me with my car. Any of those like, I just need a handyman. It's just a fix it type of a problem. I call Mark. In fact, I called Mark just a couple weeks ago. We were in this room during the week. We had our kids camp here. Over 160 kids were all out in the lobby. You think you get crowded out in the lobby. 160 elementary kids waiting to move into this room for a worship time. And none of this worked. And so all the counselors and all the staff were looking at me and said, well, it's your church, fix it. I said, no, 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 no. You misunderstand the role of a pastor at a church. I will pray with you. I will cry with you, but I cannot fix anything with technology in this room. So I called a friend. I called Mark. I said, Mark, we're panicking. There's a hundred plus kids in the lobby that need to come in now and nothing works. He says, well, go over to the back. Tell me what you see. I said, no, you misunderstand. Nothing is working. Nothing's on. He says, well, FaceTime me. So we start FaceTiming and he's got me underneath the consoles with flashlights. And he's like, well, pull that. No, switch this one on. Now pull that out. I'm like, Mark, it worked. And I'm like, Mark, literally you saved the day. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we were able to go on with our day. I'm sure you have some of those people that, man, I just need some help. I can't do this so I need some help. You have that Joshua Beam type of a person that has a skill set, has a talent, has a gift and ability given by God to not just help themselves, but to help others. We all need friends that we can count on. Here's the second friend that we see, the second of the three out of David's mighty men. Verse nine, next in rank among the three was Eleazar. Eleazar with David, look, they stood together against the Philistines when the entire Israelite army had fled. He killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to even lift the sword. And the Lord gave him a great victory that day. Look at this last line. I think it's super important why it's in here. The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. You have friends in your life that tend to leave when things get difficult. And then they tend to show back up when things get right again, don't they? We have people around us that as long as things are on the up and up, they're right there with you. But as soon as danger, difficulty, struggle, and life happen, they do what the Israelites do, and they flee, only to find their way back once everything is back right again. 
but not Eleazar. Eleazar, when everybody else deserted David, when everybody else fled, he didn't just stay put. He went back to back with David. What do we learn here as a friend? You need a friend that you can lean on. Have friends that you can lean on. I don't know if it's exactly how this battle was fought, but I have that picture of David and Eleazar literally back to back, leaning on each other as they fight off an entire group of Philistines. They could count on each other, yes, but more importantly in this case, they leaned on one another. What's great about having a friend like Eleazar who you can lean on is they're just there, right? They don't necessarily bring something unique and special to the table like, like our friend before. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna fix the problem. They're just there through thick and thin. They're there no matter what. And what's beautiful about a friend that you can lean on is they continue to walk with you. They walk with you through the good. They walk with you through the bad. When it gets difficult, they're still there. Proximity-wise, in order to lean on somebody, they have to be close by. So these friends don't keep you at a distance. No, they draw in close with you. It's no good to have a friend that's distant to lean on because you'll fall. But as long as they're close, right next to you, just like we're told, that they both, David and Eleazar, they stood together. They leaned on one another through a very difficult time. When everybody else deserted, Eleazar stayed and stayed close and continued to fight even when he was so exhausted. Scripture says he couldn't even lift up his sword anymore. That's the kind of friend you need in your life. One that you can count on and one that you can lean on. In Hebrew, Eleazar's name literally means God has helped. I love that. God has helped. On your own sometime, maybe write this down, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us God's plan for helping us and helping and comforting one another. Basically, what we're told is that God is the source of all comfort. So that makes sense. When we're struggling, when we're having a difficulty, when we're not sure what to do, when we're grieving or mourning, we cry out, God, I need comfort. It's a prayer I pray with people quite often. Prayer for comfort. But what we're told, if you keep reading through chapter one of 2 Corinthians, is God says, I'm the source of all comfort. And yes, I have comforted you, given you comfort in your times of trouble, but there's another part. So that you can comfort others in their time of need and trouble. Do you catch how God's working? God's like, yes, I'm the source of all comfort. You will not find comfort outside of me. And yes, I will give you comfort, but you're intended to do something with it. Not just to hold on to the comfort for yourself, but when your friends, when others around you are in trouble, when they're in need, when they're needing comfort, you, 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 you go to them. You allow them to lean on you and you show them the same comfort that I've shown you. So God shows us how he intends us to comfort others by leaning on, <clears throat> leaning on one another. Now we get to the third. This one's probably my favorite. If I'm allowed to have a favorite of the three, this one is it. Verse 11, next in rank was Shema. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. The Israelite army fled. You kind of notice that happens quite often with the Israelites. As soon as the Philistines show up, they run away, except for these three. He was in a field of lentils. The Israelite army fled, but Shema held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Here's why I love Shema so much and, and how, how he fits into this greater story of friendship. 
he was in a field of lentils. It, I had to Google lentils. It's not spectacular at all. In fact, this is a bag of lentils. And so here the Philistine armies attack, the Israelites do what they do best and they run away except for one, the mighty Shema. And he said, I will defend this field of lentils. I will not give up any of these lentils. These are the Lord's lentils. I'm just picturing Shema, like fighting off the Philistine over these. Like you can't even see them probably. Like if I poured out a few, here, here's a lentil. There you go. Did Shema risk his life for this? Yes. And it makes almost no sense. Like this is the hill you're going to die on for the lentil. That's like, I would imagine all the other Israelites. I mean, I kind of side with them a little bit where it's, you know what? We can figure something out. This field of lentils is not worth dying for. We're out. Yet Shema saw something different. He saw the importance of that field, of that plot of ground, so much, in fact, that he held his ground. He would not give up an inch of it. He would not retreat. He would not compromise. He would not give in. He held his ground for a field full of lentils. Why? Because it was important. Bottom line. That ground that he was defending and protecting, that field of lentils that he was risking his life for, that field produced the lentils which provided food for the Israelite army. That food for the Israelite army gave them strength to continue fighting or running away another day as we usually see it. It was important. That field of lentils mattered. When nobody else in, this, in that part of the story recognized the value of a lintel, Shema did. And he held his ground and he fought for it. And he defended it and he protected it with his life. We need a friend like that. Have a friend who protects what matters most. I mean, if you're like me, there are plenty of times throughout the seasons of my life where the priorities get a little out of whack, don't they? We get distracted and we start focusing too much on the wrong things. We don't put as much effort and energy into the right things. And so we all need friends around us that say, no, 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 no. Your priorities are a little mixed up. You need to fight for what's right. It's the Shema friends that have their priorities in order. It's the friends like Shema that refuse to compromise what is right for what is convenient and comfortable. And they have no problem telling us that. See, it's easy to put yourself around a bunch of yes people and yes friends where every idea you have is the best idea ever. Every decision you make was a great idea. But the problem with that is those are not always the right decisions and they're not always the best ideas. And you need to have somebody like this that says, wait, time out. This is what matters most. These are the right priorities. This is what's important. Let's talk about the decisions being made in your life. You've got to have somebody like that in your life. You gotta have friends who protect what matters, who guard what's important, who are so rooted and grounded in their faith that they will not give up any ground. And they will fight for what is right, especially when it comes to you and your priorities and your faith. So there's the three. Out of all the Israelite army, you had the 30 of the mightiest warriors 
And out of those 30 mightiest warriors, David had three that he called closest. Ones that you could count on, ones that you could lean on, and ones that protected and fought for what was most important. We gotta have friends like that. You need friends like that in your life. And I would tell you, if you have friends like that, like as I'm just talking through these and names start to pop in your head, oh, I called this person for this. And man, this person walked, through, walked with me through some really difficult times. Man, God actually comforted me through them. I've got somebody in my life who does call me out in the right and respectful way, but, but man, they have such a strong faith that it helps me grow in my faith because they fight for what matters. Like as you start putting names with those descriptions, will you just make sure to say thank you to them? In fact, like you have my permission to ignore what I'm about to say next, to pull out your phone and text them and just say, it's not just thanks for being my friend, it's thanks for doing this for me. Thanks for walking with me in this situation. Thank you for letting me lean on you now. Thank you for being so grounded in your faith that it helps me grow in my faith. Like tell them why and hold on to them because they bring so much value to you. Now, on the flip side of that, if you're going, if we're talking through this list of friends and you're like, man, it's like the most discouraging sermon ever because I don't have anybody like that. Thanks a lot for telling me how great it is to have friends like this and I don't have them in my life. If that's you, let me give you a different suggestion. Flip everything we've said around a little bit. Instead of have friends that you can count on and have friends that you can lean on and have friends that fight and guard and protect what's important, you be that friend. You be the person that other people can count on. You be the person that they start to call when they're going through something. You be the friend that others can lean on. Well, I don't know what to do and I don't know the words to say. I mean, let me just say, one of the best things that you can do if you're walking with someone through something is to not say anything. That's one of the best things that you can do is to just walk with them, sit with them, be with them. You're not trying to fix it. You're trying to be with them. Be a friend that fights for what's right. Be a friend that has their priorities in order to help those around them. So if you don't have them in your life, start being them. And I think God will honor that relationship and you'll see something beautiful begin to flourish within that friendship. Now, what we're reading through, like we could stop here and you guys would all get out early. You'd get to go to lunch early and be like, man, this is great. We learned about having friends and being good friends. The reality is there's a whole nother part of this story. There's another part that talks about these three and not just the kind of friends they were, but we actually see a lesson that David brings up. Yes, friends are important. Friendships are important. We need them. We should be them. But as important as friends are, they are not the most important thing. And that's what we're going to see in the second part of this story. Here's what we read. Verse 13, this will be a story of those three. We saw kind of individual stories, what they did for David and the kingdom. Now we're gonna see what they did collectively together and how David responded. Verse 13, once during the harvest, when David was at the cave of Adullam, the Philistine army was camped near the Valley of Rephraim. The three we just talked about, who were among the 30, an elite group among David's fighting men, they went down to meet him there. David was staying in the stronghold at the time and it was, was at the stronghold at this time and the Philistine detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. David, and if you've been with this series, he finds himself in caves quite a bit. So we're now in another cave situation with King David. So he's out in the caves hiding away and he looks over to where there's a detachment of Philistines and they've occupied his hometown, Bethlehem. 
He's out in the caves hiding out and the Philistines have taken over Bethlehem, David's hometown where he grew up, where he walked through the fields, where he had his friends and family and relatives. That's where he grew up and he's recognizing what has happened. And then in that moment, these three came down to check on David. David's got his army with him, but these three make their way down because that's what friends do. They go and they check on their other friends. When they get down there, look what David does. Verse 15, David remarked longingly to his men, oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem. Now, typically we don't have that type of longing like David had, if we don't just wish for a specific kind of water. But you gotta understand, David's out in the caves, overlooking his hometown. And it's not just a, I wish we had clean water because I'm sure the caves didn't have great water. I wish we had water, but oh, from my hometown. I remember those moments of drinking from that water. I have such great memories. So he's, he's reminiscing with his soldiers and with those three. Oh, what it would be like to just be able to walk out of these caves and go and get a drink from that well in my hometown. It'd be like my, my wife and I, we're not originally from there, but before moving to Georgia, we lived in California. And I'm telling you, every time we go out and eat like a fast food hamburger, I just, every time, my, my kids are tired of hearing about it, but I just miss In-N-Out. I miss In-N-Out so much. And for those of you that like grew up in this area, don't even say it. Cause you're like, well, we have Whataburger or Whataburger. And I'm like, don't care a burger. Cause it's not the same thing. It's nowhere near the same thing. We tried it once. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Don't even want to try to take it, eat it because it's not the same as In-N-Out. I miss In-N-Out. Double, double, animal style with cheese and fries. I need a minute. <laughs> oh, that's what I miss. Right now, and David saying that, oh, I miss this water from my hometown. He's not asking anybody to go get him the water. He's not commanding his soldiers to go get him the water. Me talking about in and out I have no expectations that anybody's gonna head over to California real quick and then bring me back in and out for lunch. That's not an expectation, it's just reminiscing. It's just a longing for, that's what David's doing. He misses his hometown and wishes he could have a drink from that water, but he's got some great friends, great friends, because look at what happens in verse 16. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem and brought it back to David. Now that's some friends you need in your corner. That's some friends that they didn't need to be told. They didn't need to be asked. There was no expectation whatsoever from David to go to the water, but they said, you know what? This is what our king longs for. This is what our king desires. He doesn't have to ask us, we're gonna act. See, many of David's men, even in the 30 and in his entire army, many of those men, maybe even all of those men would not just fight for King David, but would give their lives for King David. But only the three were willing to act in such a way and serve in such a way that just pleased the king. Like them going to get water for David didn't turn the tides of the battle and then they were able to overrun the Philistines and battle over. No, like the Philistines still occupied Bethlehem. So it didn't change anything for the kingdom. It didn't change anything for, other, for the rest of the people in the army. All it did was bring their king some joy. Oh, don't miss that. All they did was do something 
that pleased their king, that brought their king some joy without being asked, without being told, without being commanded. They just wanted to please their king. Great friends, great love, great loyalty, great devotion to just please their king. We would imagine that David's response would have just been, I mean, through the roof, thankful and grateful, ecstatic, maybe even gives those three a promotion, gives them a certificate, gives them something, a medal, a way to honor them because of all the great things that they did just to please their king. But we get a very unexpected response from David. So after these three, remember what they had to do. They had to break through enemy lines get behind enemy lines, get a cup of water and then fight their way back to David without spilling this cup of water to bring it to David. And here's what David does, but he refused to drink it. Instead, King David, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. The Lord forbid that I should drink this, he exclaimed. This water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. These are examples of the exploits of the three. So all the work, the risk, the battle that these three had to fight through to bring David back water, David takes it and pours it out. That seems rude, ungrateful. Like, don't you realize what these men did for you and you, David, poured it out on the ground? At first glance, it looks just like that. It looks rude and it looks ungrateful. But what we see is what David is actually trying to do is point to God. David does that not all the time perfectly by any stretch, but throughout David's life, he continues to try to point people to God. And that's what he does here. When David poured it out, he wasn't being ungrateful. In fact, he was delighted. He was grateful but he did not consider himself worthy to receive that kind of love, that kind of loyalty, that kind of sacrifice, or that kind of devotion. He said, men, my words, thank you for the sacrifice, love, and devotion, but I am not worthy, but God is. So instead of giving your life to me, give your life to God. Because notice the key part here is he didn't just pour it out on the ground. We're told he refused to drink it and said he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. Not just poured it out. He poured it out to the Lord. Yes, we need to have great friends in our lives. We need friends that we can count on, that we can lean on, that we can, that we can run to. We need friends like that. We need friends like David had. We need to be that kind of friend to other people to have that kind of loyalty and love and devotion to other people. But at the end of the day, our greatest love, our greatest loyalty and our greatest devotion should lie with God, not the other people around us. That's what David's trying to get across as he pours this out in front of his men, not out of disrespect, not out of being ungrateful, but out of your devotion is so great. May you have that kind of devotion and more towards your heavenly father. Our greatest devotion should be to God. If we went around the room and we talked about all the things that you do for your friends or for your spouse and for your kids, and don't sell yourself short. I'm sure we, none of us are perfect. We could always do better, but I'm sure you all do a great job. 
I think where we need to lean in is our devotion towards God. Man, I would do that for my spouse, but would I do that for God? I would do that for my kids, but I would do that for my Lord. I would do that for my friends, but would I do that for my Savior? Our greatest devotion should be towards God. As I said, David has a great way of always pointing towards God. Throughout David's stories, as we've studied, each of his stories in some way gives us a glimpse into what's about to happen later on with the life of Jesus. David is by no means Jesus, but David and his stories foreshadow and point to the Messiah and the Savior that is to come. We see that in this story as well, where David is looking onto Bethlehem, longing for the water from Bethlehem. Many, many years later, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And he would tell people as he began his ministry, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and I will give you living, anybody remember? Water. I will give you living water. Talking about the spirit that would come and dwell in us and seal us for eternal life. He says, anybody that is thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water. And anybody who drinks of that living water will never be thirsty again. David, as he poured out the water that his men brought him as an offering, Jesus from Bethlehem poured his life out for you and for me so that we could have life, eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and the gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jesus's words in John chapter 15, just to give you context, this is towards the end of Jesus's life. In fact, if you keep reading, he will be betrayed and arrested and crucified um, here very soon. He just finished washing the disciples' feet when he said this, verse 13 out of John 15, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. But look, but now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. Now that's written Jesus to his disciples, but we can read that as he's speaking to us as well. That he is our friend. And what do friends do? They lay their lives down for those they love, which is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said, you are my friend and I'm gonna give my life for you. But then there's kind of this almost unspoken question of, well, will you be Jesus's friend? He's already gone first. He said, you're my friend, whether we're friends or not in your eyes. He's your friend and he has died for you. But what does it look like for us to have him as a friend? What does that look like for us to give our lives in a way that we would be considered friends of his? To answer that question, let me read a quick story out of Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, during Jesus's ministry, you're gonna see some similarities between what happened in David's story with uh, the cup as well as the story here. Verse three, meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over Jesus's head. Do you understand what's happening here? She brings in this highly expensive perfume. She doesn't just pour a little bit and then save some. She breaks the top of the jar, pours all of it over the head of Jesus. 
She poured it all out. Verse four, some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. What a waste. Why would you pour all of that out to this man? We could have done so much with it. We could have sold it. We could have used it. But you, this woman, she just poured it all out. What a waste. Verse six, Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing? And here's the key two words, to me. She didn't just pour it on the floor. She poured it out to Jesus. You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. Verse eight, she has done what she could. Pause there for a second. So often we think, well, I don't have enough. Jesus recognizes you do what you can. She did what she could. And she anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And here we are over 2000 years later, fulfilling that piece. What a waste to pour out water that these men had to fight to get. What a waste to pour out this perfume that cost a year's worth of pay. What a waste, but it was who it was poured out to. David poured it out to the Lord. This woman poured it out to Jesus. So that doesn't make it a waste, it makes it an offering. It makes it worship to pour out a life to him. What do we do as friends of Jesus? We did what he did for us. He poured out his love and his life for us. And so we pour out our life and love to him. That's what it looks like to not just have Jesus as a friend, but to be a friend to Jesus. Let's go back to our cups for a second. All the things that we value, mentally we've placed in this cup. Let's go through them again. The relationships that we high and high regard, the finances and the resources, the things that we work towards and work for, the careers, the jobs, the status, all the things that you would consider valuable are in this cup. And what we tend to do is once we start to put something in there, we cover it up. Oh, I don't want any of it accidentally leaking out. So we walk around keeping a tight lid on our life and on our cup because we've worked hard for these things. We don't wanna lose these things. So I'm gonna hold it with a tight grip. Instead, what Jesus is encouraging us to do, he tells us so in, not, in Luke chapter nine, verse 23 and 24. He says, anybody wants to gain life? Well, you're gonna have to lose your life first. And if you really wanna learn how to lose your life, well, just keep holding on to the one that you have. Bottom line, pour it out. Pour out your cup, pour out your life. Does that mean we never get to experience those great things that he's given us? Oh no, of course not. We get to enjoy those with an open hand that says, but God, these are yours. That's what an offering is. We are mistaken by saying offering is just about money. No, offering is by saying, God, I am yours. Whatever I have is yours. Whatever you give me, you can use for whatever way you want, whenever you want, for whoever you want. I am yours. So we pour our life out to him. You can't do a little bit of both. 
Notice David didn't just pour a little bit. Oh, now I'll save the rest. This woman didn't just pour a little bit and save the rest for later. So often that's where we find ourselves. Well, okay, God, here's part of my life. Not that part. I've worked way too hard for that part. But you can have this part. But wait, we got to stop there. It was too much. Let's put a little bit back in. Can I plead with you to give your lives as an offering to God? Paul says in Romans 12, 1, that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. So pour your life out to him. If you would, close your eyes with me. And I want to give you a moment to begin wrestling with that. Some of you have never given your life to Jesus. You start there. I don't have all the answers and I don't exactly know what to do. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to recognize your need for a savior. The sin in our life, we cannot fix on our own. So we need a savior to do just that for us. He poured out his life for us because we could not get rid of sin on our own. Some of you, maybe baptism is your next step. Baptism celebrates that decision where we are given new life because of the life that we've poured out to him. Some of you may be walking around with two hands over your cup because you've worked so hard and it's been a long journey and you can't imagine losing what you've worked so hard for. Would you give your life over to him? Let him use you. Let him move through you to impact the people around you. May your life be an offering to Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for how you move in our lives. Thank you for the stories of David that help us not just know how to move closer to you, but how you move closer to us. Jesus, thank you for pouring out your life as an offering for us. Without you, we have no way of getting to God. Jesus, it's only through you, so thank you. Not because we have to, not because you tell us to, not because we feel like we should, but may we, out of the desire of our heart, pour our lives out to you just because it would please you. Not out of obligation, but out of joy. Thank you for being our savior. Thank you for being our Lord. Thank you for being our king and the king above all kings. But most of all today, thank you for being our friend. In Jesus' name, amen.